0: So Tim, I'm going to put you on the spot. Mhm. Do you know the date that
1: you got engaged? Yes. I'm impressed. October 18th, 2013. Got it. That's around your birthday, right? The day before my birthday, which is okay. why I remember that. There's huh. a great story about it. On my birthday, a lot of my friends, we all went to Oktoberfest at Bear Mountain, New York. And we showed all of our friends that we got engaged one after the other, and I got absolutely obliterated at Oktoberfest. The number of Das Boots I drank that evening—you will have a conniption if you knew how many there were. It was crazy. More than Zeben? Yeah, probably. Yes. <laughs> So I don't know the exact date
0: that I got engaged and Neither does Meg. We've had, we've gone through the calendar a couple of times and tried to figure it out. And every time we do, we come to a slightly different date. But we know it was June of 2002, which mm. was just a crazy fun month. Sometime in early June where, we, where I had sort of made a hotel reservation, and got a dinner reservation. I had everything sort of plotted. And at like the last minute, Meg bailed on me to go out with her friend. And she still Ooh. was mad. And she was, it was funny, is when I told her this a couple weeks later, she was really mad that I didn't just call her friend and tell her what was going to go on, because she's like, they definitely would have pulled the plug for that. But yeah, anyway, yeah, and then so I pushed things back a week, only to realize that the De- the, uh, plan B coincided with game five of the Stanley Cup finals and me being a huge Red Wings fan at the time I was not going to miss that that was maybe the best team in history the 0 wings <laughs> who uh, beat the Hurricanes uh, you know how many Hall miss, of Famers how many Hall it, of Famers did the 0-1, 0-2 wings have Tim
1: I'm sure quite a few with Sergey on the team Eiserman was probably still on the team right you had
0: 10 yeah. Hall of Famers 10 Hall of can Famers I'll- Tim
1: Chelly, Chely, Shanahan. Place. That was
0: yeah. when they traded for They also had Brett Hull and Dominic Hasek, who they brought in as it's, like, uh, you know. Yeah. It was it a ridiculous 15. team. Why not? So the following week, we were like, it was sort of in the works as well. But uh, it was the, it turned out it was like the knockout round of the World Cup. And uh, my buddy and I went to this british bar and stayed up all night and watched uh, england lose to brazil i don't know if you remember that match this was crazy when michael owens scored in the first half and then they gave up two goals to brazil brazil then got a red card and england was like had so many chances and couldn't quite tie it up but we're but everybody was like singing having a really good time we went home slept it off for a little bit got up to watch the u.s lose in heartbreaking heartbreaking fashion to germany when torsten fring's handballed and uh it didn't get called and then we stumbled up to wrigley field my buddy's um Uh, like I think it was my buddy's parents, friends had gotten uh, him for law school graduation tickets to go see the Cubs. We had really good seats, uh, right behind the dugout. The Cubs won two to one. The game lasted less than an hour and 50 minutes. Fred McGriff hit two home runs, both of the runs for uh, the Cubs. And John Lieber pitched a complete game. Only gave up one run. They beat the Cardinals. So it was a good time. So mm. anyway, Megan and I think that we probably got engaged the following week after that. So it was sometime around like June 27th or 28th. We're not sure. But anyway, I was just sort of thinking about that and trying to put together, you know, what was going on in June in my life. And it turns out there were a lot of really fun things going on in June of t- 2002. Uh, And perhaps it doesn't really make that much of a difference what Date Everything Happened Because fun was had by all Fun was had by all, Tim 2002 was a really
1: good time And I'm excited to get into the songs of 2002 Great transition Just perfect there, Chris Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to 2002 This is Hall of Songs Welcome music lovers and loyal listeners to Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I am Tim Malcolm. I am Chris Jones. I was talking to my daughter who's in kindergarten and the song Can't Touch This by MC Hammer came on the radio, not a Hall of Songs nominee, and she instantly started singing along to it. Well, I knew she knew the song, but then she said, Chris, this is a kid's bop song. Uh-oh. Yep. Yep. So, if you heard our 2001 episode and my rain on kids bop, you know I had said that my kids will never listen to kids bop. I will tell you, it doesn't matter what you try to do. Kids are going to find a way to listen to and watch things that you don't want them to because they have school, they have friends, they have other things. So, yes, I have failed in the kids bop, uh, the kids bop restriction policy that I had made. That's no good, Tim. <laughs> it is. How are you? How are things? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, it
0: it went went from winter to summer here in Philadelphia. Lots going on though, got some travel coming
1: up, exciting things in our lives. So, uh, so it's good. It is summer here in Houston as well. In April, already in the 80s, pretty nicely. But this is the best weather. The weather's still tolerable. It's not sticky hot. You can go out and walk even in the middle of the daytime and enjoy yourself. Uh, you can go eat at restaurants outside and really have a nice time. We're probably going to hit a brewery this weekend, which is really nice. Ooh. So excited for the uh, prospects of being outside for more than an hour.
0: Almost as long as Fish's tweezer from the other night. Did you see that, Tim?
1: Almost. No. I do. do you think I saw that? I didn't see that. How? I mean, it was what, big How news. long was this one?
0: Uh forty-three minutes, thirty-nine seconds. I believe is what it checked oh, in
1: at. For on, uh, the love. That's, but it went it long. went
0: into a simple that was about twenty two minutes long as well. So we've got you know almost an hour and ten minutes of music and two songs.
1: That's as long as like a Stone Temple Pilots set in two thousand and ten. I would guess longer actually.
0: I saw yeah. there was a. The worst concert I ever saw was Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And this was like one of those like 90s just complete money grab tours. Like I think that their set was like 37 minutes, and then they came out and did like a, you know, an encore that was like four or five songs. They played like a couple of the songs from The Greatest Hits and were like, all right, where's our check?
1: Yeah. They wanted to get high and drunk and not worry those about dead. wherever the hell they were. Yeah, and
0: charged us like $65 a ticket in 1995 or whatever it was.
1: Ugh. Boomers. All right, 2002. Of course, Hall of Songs is a podcast in which we try to determine the greatest songs ever. We do that by giving you what we think are the 12 best songs of the given year that we are in. We started this whole project with 1951. We're now in 2002, so we are over 50 years through. After each episode, after we nominate the 12 songs, we put them on a ballot that exists at hallofsongs.com. There you can vote for up to 10 songs that you think are worthy of the Hall of Songs, you make those decisions, we tabulate, and then we give you the results on what is the newest member of the Hall of Songs or newest members. Or if there's no new members, we sound the prices Right fail horn and tell you that you guys stunk as voters. Chris, before we get into the whole 2002 of it all, tell people where they can find us on the web, where they can find us on social media, and then we'll move on from there.
0: All right. Well, you probably know where to find us if you're listening to us now on all the podcast app. Find us at Hall of uh, That's the website. That's where you can vote, where you can find links to everything as well. You can also find us at Hall of Songs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We'll see how much longer we last on Twitter. Uh, although gee, I got retweeted by Jenny Lewis the first day of the uh, that the blue check marks disappeared so it's was like it, I, my, my it notifications really it was definitely really Jenny Lewis well wow. okay. it's the, Je- the Jenny Lewis that I've been following for like four years so sweet, uh, sweet. it was pretty exciting yeah so that like my notifications blew up for a moment in time last night anyway uh, so you know the the node blue check marks things going well for me but uh, but yeah so we're, we're on Twitter for time being Hall of songs uh, we do interact there at least as long as that site still exists before it's burned to the ash. Uh, and you can email us too Email us at hall of po- hall of songs pod at gmail.com
1: Alright we'll be back in a moment To talk about 2002 We're back here at Hall of Songs To talk about the year 2002 Before we give you our nominees For the best songs of this year Which is a really interesting year I say that about every year of course Chris, what's going on in 2002 with you? So you're out of college. You're a professional. You're starting to uh, make your yeah. lot in the world.
0: I used to well, – so summer 2002, I studied for the bar exam. I started clerking for a judge in the fall of 2002. Uh, like I said, we, Meg and I were engaged. We would actually already bought a place in Chicago. So she went to go study in D.C. for a year. I was living by myself in a place that Meg and I lived together. And then all of my derelict uh, – my sister moved in with us for a while, my friend Joe moved in with us for a while while Meg was gone. They
1: figured, mm. yeah, free place in Chicago. So, there you go. It was fun. The same the same Joe who didn't remember your birthday moved in with you.
0: Same Joe, he's long since forgiven. Yeah.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay. I I don't forget though. <laughs> I don't forget these things. As for me, I was in high school. I was graduating from high school in June of 2002. So, as you're getting engaged, I'm graduating. Uh, wearing shorts on the lawn at the man music center, which is where we graduated. And then I went to Boston, Boston university at the end of 2002 and remembering just not knowing how to start my life. This is the beginning of me being out of uh, home and out of away from my family and all of that. So it was a really fun time, but a very kind of daunting, nervous time for me. We're not going to talk about that though. I want to actually talk about the changes that are happening everywhere else in the world, especially in the internet.
3: 1995
1: Minneapolis-area record store employee Ryan Schreiber started writing monthly music reviews and interviews on the internet, posting it via an early website that he created called Turntable. By mid-96, he changed the posting frequency to daily, changed the website name to Pitchfork. Over the next several years, Pitchfork would gain a following as it touted a consistent amount of discourse about primarily indie rock. Then in January of 2002, New Yorker Scott Lapatine started his own website for reviews, interviews, and commentary called Stereogum. Soon the internet would be populated by other like-minded websites offering commentary on all kinds of music. And in some cases, even pushing MP3s sent to them into the ears of its readers. Tiny Mixtapes got going in 2001. Brooklyn Vegan and said the Gramophone in 2003. In 05, college student Anthony Valdkin created an MP3 database called Hype Machine that would soon become a monstrous blog aggregator and indie tastemaker. In the hip-hop community, there was Support Online Hip-Hop, created in 96 to foster a community for rappers not covered by the mainstream. In 98, All Hip Hop launched to be the internet home for everything hip hop. Hip Hop DX became the pitchfork for rap starting in 99, and in 2005, Osmi SK Rollins created Now Right, which would move mixtapes by rappers across the country to its readers daily. This is the beginning of the blog era, a time when online creators would not so much circumvent as completely dismiss the traditional way to get music into the wild. It would create several hundred new music stars, including gigantic names like Drake, and would lead to a future where a kid named Justin Bieber could go from YouTube to selling out stadiums. In a stroke of incredible timing, there's a new podcast all about the hip-hop side of it. It's called The Blog Era. It tells the story of rap between mostly 2007 and 12, though the story seeds are formed in this time. It's also hosted by the hip-hop comedians, historians, and culture curators It's The Real, or Eric and Jeff Rosenthal. Jeff happens to be a college friend of mine. I would meet him not long after 2002. And he's one of the best people that I've ever known. So go check out the blog era. I've listened to the first episode. It is really good. We've covered changes in the songwriting process, changes in the recording process, changes in the instruments used, and changes in the technology implemented. All in the name of creating songs. We're about to enter a time, though, when the way songs are even heard is flipped completely upside down. And that's what the blog era ushers in. And in 2002, it really starts to heat up. Were you a blog person in 2002, Chris? Um,
0: A little different world. I spent my life at this time religiously on political blogs of the type. So mm. the early, early political blogs, I would actually write and comment on many of those. Uh, and then when I was not there, I was on Baseball Prospectus nonstop. Like just going through ridiculous numbers and things like that. I could tell you, you know, I could tell you the vorp of almost every player in baseball at that time.
1: Uh, Let's go. Uh,
0: (laughs) Oh no, I can't do it now. I could have. Mark
1: Loretta, Mark (laughs) Loretta, 2002, his vorp, go.
0: Yeah, no. So it's funny. I lived because I was on the North side of Chicago. I actually went to lots of Cubs games and was sort of a a mild Cubs fan there during the the era of the guardians or the then Indians plummet from grace where they sold all of their players for parts before becoming good again.
1: Hmm. It happens from time to time.
0: Yeah, who is that? O2. Oh, 2, oh, two uh, that was the uh, Angels beat Barry Bonds and the, the Giants in the World Series, right?
1: That's right. And uh, Dusty Baker's son came out and got into the game, essentially.
0: Yeah, did you see? That kid is now, like, playing. That kid is yes, now, he's in the right. Nationals' farm system. He's actually like, almost in the major leagues. I watched Game 7 of that in a uh, in a hotel room. Uh, right outside of Detroit airport I was, in, I was in Ann Arbor for the Michigan-Iowa game and flying home early the next morning The moral of the
1: story Chris is we will die soon This is true We will die Time to give you the top 12 songs of 2002 Chris Take it away
0: Alright kicking us off in 2002 Is none other than Nora Jones Making her first appearance on Hall of Songs With of course Don't Know Why From January 2002
2: uh- don't know why I didn't come. I left you by the house of fun. I don't know why I didn't come. I don't know why I didn't
1: It's like a massive sea change in music right here with like (laughs) jazz and soft adult contemporary. Like, where did this come from?
0: This is the moment Starbucks began selling CDs, I think, right? Ah,
1: yes. Yes, this is the the moment. Ray Charles will finally have his day very soon. (laughs) Gitali Nora Jones Shankar was born on March 30th, 1979 in Manhattan, the daughter of American concert producer Sue Jones and legendary Bengali musician Ravi Shankar unsurprisingly she was a musician from the start had an early affection for bill evans and billy holiday she camped at the interlock and arts academy in northern michigan which means she spent her summers a few miles away from chris chris wrote most of these so you know by the way (laughs) after a stop at the university of north texas go mean green she found her way back to new york City and became a lounge singer some late 2000 recording sessions would become the album new york city by the peter Malik group featuring Nora jones Ultimately, Blue Note Records, then owned by EMI, would sign Jones after hearing a three-track demo in which Jones sang two jazz standards and a song by Jesse Harris. That Jesse Harris song, Don't Know Why, would become the first single from Jones's Blue Note debut, Come Away With Me. This wasn't as big a hit as I thought it was. Number 30 on the Hot 100. It was number four on the Adult Contemporary chart, so it was up there. But I truly thought that this was a smash because I heard it a lot. Maybe this was just like the VH1 song of the moment, and I was watching VH1 a lot at this time.
0: It also was that the album became a smash. Like, I mean, this album I think is what – like it's like in the top 35 or something selling albums of all time now. This was – it's like if you got into somebody's car – if you were my age, then in 2002, they had this CD. It like, it kind of didn't matter what their type was. You know, it was like, if you got it in and it, it was like, you, if you got in somebody's car, they had the CD. And if you were to get in their parents' car, they would also have the CD. You know, it was like everybody just sort of had this sitting around to listen to. Like I said, they probably all bought it at Starbucks.
1: You know, for those who haven't listened to this podcast yet, we measure nominate songs based on popularity, impact, and influence. This is a quintessential impact song to me, whereas before this, there really wasn't a lot of adult contemporary that sounded like this. You know, you started to get there with artists like Alicia Keys, we had Fallen in the last episode, Vanessa Carlton, A Thousand Miles, that song obviously piano-based. We're getting there with this softer commercial singer-songwriter fair, and this is really the one that kind of blows up. This is the artist that becomes made because of that sound and is Taylor made for that sound. It's also the idea of jazz more than actual jazz coming in. You know, when people think of this song as jazzy, I don't really hear it. I just hear instruments that sound like they would belong in jazz composition sometimes. But this is really adult contemporary Um, but it's really nice song. It's a, I mean, I, I like, I got sick of it when I was younger, but going back and listening to it, Nora's very assured as a 22, 23 year old here. Uh, she's got that smoky lounge vocal style that works about this song, which is really bittersweet. There might even be some sexual references in here. I think, you know, the, uh, don't know why he didn't come. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but there's something there. That's kind of more than just your usual adult contemporary song here.
0: Yeah, I definitely think there's supposed to be a little bit of that, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge going on. And, you know, not over the top, certainly not overt, but it is sort of supposed to be there. Uh it's funny, you know, the last episode we talked about the September eleventh attacks and we sort of said it was gonna be interesting to see how uh we dealt with you know, sort of listening to how music sort of reacted to that. And in looking at the two thousand and two list, there's very little here that I would say is kind of an, you know, express uh you know reaction to september 11th there's anything that sort of deals with it you know like up front we didn't nominate any of the kind of the you know the post september 11th albums but there's less there than what i thought but i was wondering if maybe there's something to the popularity of this and is like it's kind of like comfort food you know where there was sort of this idea of and like i said it was more appealing than going to listen to something that was heavier and that tried to deal with uh, you know with politics tried to deal with world affairs or tried to deal with anything sort of lyrically that was difficult. It was just you know easier to sit back, go to the Starbucks, go home, sit on your back porch, and listen to nora jones
1: well I think it 's very true that in times of great chaos and turbulence uh, politically and socially. There seems to be the shift to more comfort food sort of media. I think of the 1980s when everybody was all worried about Star Wars and the Soviets and all of that. Television. Was booming with these family sitcoms that didn't really deal with anything serious. Uh, Sometimes they would, they would have their sort of you know story of the a very special episode, very special episode, right? But most of the time, it was sort of lightweight kind of stuff. So I get it, you know. Here, this is a moment here in 2002 where we kind of just want to drift into something that doesn't make us think about all the bad stuff, and we'll hear a lot of this stuff in this episode. Surprising, we did not nominate, courtesy of the red, white, and blue. Why didn't uh, we do that?
0: Uh, <laughs> we even enough songs dealing with boots in your ass.
1: <laughs> you would think that we, the two of us, would like that song. Anyways, that brings us to our second nominee for 2002 from March of the year. Another kind of comfort foodie song. This is Avril Lavigne, her first Hall of Songs nominee. Complicated.
2: Looking to me one on one, but you become somebody else. Round everyone else. You're watching your back, like you can't relax. You try to be cool, you look like a fool to me. Tell me why do you have to go make things so complicated? I see the way you're acting like you're somebody else. Gets me frustrated.
1: So for years, people would call this pop punk, Chris. Are you kidding me? This isn't I, pop punk.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a good song, but this is a pop song or a country song or something else. It's a country song. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's absolutely a country song. Yeah. All right. So legend has it that the parents of Belleville, Ontario's Avril Lavigne realized she had talent when she sang Jesus Loves Me in the car on her way home from church in 1986 when she was two years old. My children also sing Jesus Loves Me in the car on the way home from church. And I don't know. They're They're good, I guess. I don't know. From that moment, she was singing, whether at karaoke, county fairs, or just in her family's basement. She focused on country songs, Shania being a favorite, but wrote her first pop song at the age of 14. In 99, she won a contest to sing a duet with Twain, and the two appeared together in Ottawa, singing What Made You Say That? One thing would lead to another, and her demo tapes would ultimately end up in the hands of L.A. Reid. After a 15-minute live audition, Reid immediately signed Levine to Arista. Things stalled for a little bit while Levine and Arista tried to figure out where she would fit in. She rejected a few poppier songs, the label suggested, and worked on her own material, which was a bit more guitar-focused and punk-inspired. Ultimately, she would find her way to The Matrix, a three-person production crew of Lauren Christie, Graham Edwards, and Scott Spock. They would work with Levine to put together Complicated, with Levine and all three members of The Matrix ultimately getting writing credit. Released in March of 2002, it would also feature on The Matrix-produced album Let Go. This was number two on the Hot 100, p- big hit number one on the mainstream top 40 and number three in the UK across the board. People appreciated this one. This just kind of hits every demographic. This is a demographic proof song.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's, this to me is sort of the opposite of some of the faith Hill songs and that they were like, what I'm going to do here is make a country song wink, wink, but it's actually just a pop song that has some guitar over it. This is like just a country song that has a different kind of guitar over it uses a little bit different sort of vocal stylings and is able to sort of convince people that somehow that it's not a a country song
1: when it very clearly is a country song. No, it very clearly. I mean, (laughs) people, I mean, Avril Lavigne does have some punk in her, but if you're judging it by this song, you're totally off. You know, you think about Green Day and The Offspring sort of making the pop punk movement happen in the mid 90s. And their sound was raw. It was an attack of guitars. It was raunchy lyrics. It was snot-nosed. It was belligerent. This is clean and crisp, and it has that kind of herky-jerky sort of rhythm that is perfectly country rock-pop music. And pop punk itself kind of dies this year, right? Like It had its heyday already. And here in 2002, we're going to get Good Charlotte later on in the year, which, by the way, I think Good Charlotte is terrible. And it's the death knell of pop punk. But this is kind of the ultimate in what people think is pop punk being at the height of its popularity.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. It, like, I was never biggest big into the pop punk as a scene. Uh, some of the things we've talked about I like that were on the fringes of that, I guess, you know, Green Day or uh yeah who i wouldn't even necessarily pop punk more sort of pure punk i don't know exactly what that means yeah Yeah, i don't even like how that sort is supposed to be categorized but yeah i mean this to me it's sort of it's like i say it kind of it's like backwards right where it was like it it, this is starts with the pop first and then maybe add some other stuff on top of it to you know to try to give it like maybe sort of a little bit of a faux edge but you know like i like this song quite a bit and i feel like sometimes like i maybe coming across a bit negative which is not what i'm trying to do because it's actually like i don't think it needs much more of an edge because it is just a really good pop song i mean there's some some vocal sort of stylings that she uses where i think she's almost trying to or it does sound like alana's particularly in the verses i mean but then like the chorus i think is just great i mean she really belts it out it's got a killer hook and it, it really doesn't need to be anything other than what it is which is you know a pop song or a country song and i don't know tyler mahan co has his uh you know his moments when he's not trolling and i I couldn't find the exact sort of uh thing on twitter where he talked about this but he he really says there's this history of country music and like you know radio country music following pop music by about five years and it really i mean this is like sort of a perfect example of that where it's like this song if it came out like you could just hear the song on the country charts in 2007
1: I will put some cold water on this song. I'm not a big fan of this song, to be honest with you. And I think a lot of that's production related. The Matrix, their sound is very recognizable. There's very slick, spotless, microwave, 2000s pop rock sound where there's hip hop rhythms and recognizable country, classic rock guitar chords. And then always some sort of a funky element, quote unquote, like a record being scratched, right? Something like that, that just feels fake. And it doesn't sound very soulful at all. It sounds soulless and very polished. Uh, it's kind of the same as what I think about the R and B of the time that's very popular, the TLC No Scrub stuff and Destiny's Child stuff, where it just feels really cold. It doesn't really feel like it has a, a center, a, a soul. And songs that do work from The Matrix, I think, are when the artist really goes with it, like Jason Mraz's Indelible, The Remedy, or Liz Fairs' VH1, I Try Memorial Song of the Year, Why Can't I? Like, those songs really work because the artist seemed to really lay into it. I'm not sure if Avril leans into it as much as she should here. You're right that she does give a good performance. And it ultimately is a song that is worthy of the Hall of Songs because of its popularity, because it was impactful, very much so. But I'm just not a fan.
0: Fair enough. We'll move on to another one that perhaps you're more of a fan of. This one was not entirely new to me, but largely new. Uh, it is Taking Back Sunday with Cute Without the E, cut from the team.
3: Your lipstick is gone
0: We're getting into high emo, right, Tim?
3: Your lipstick is mine! i Get that! Get that.
1: <laughs> Blowing out your speakers there. This, I, yeah, this is, this is the high point of, like, pop emo, emo pop, where from this point on, every other band is going to be screaming different layered vocals and then call and response vocals, and they're going to change their tempos and do some weird breakdown and then come back with a big, like, sort of chorus or whatever. Yeah, I like this
0: one more than what I thought I might getting into it. it this was a mo- this was a movement, this whole sort of emo scene
1: that was just not on my radar at all at the time. Guitarist Jesse Lacey and Eddie Reyes, part of the Long Island, New York punk and hardcore scenes, got together to form a pop punk band in 99. They'd call themselves Taking Back Sunday from a song by a band in their circle. A lot of band changes took place from there. For one, Lacey would leave and form another band called Brand New – And by the time the band released a demo in early 2001, it was Reyes on rhythm guitar, Sean Cooper on bass, Adam Lazara on lead vocals, Mark O'Connell on drums, and John Nolan on lead guitar and keys. They'd attract label attention, ultimately signing with Victory Records at the end of 01. With Victory, they'd record their debut album, Tell All Your Friends. Slated for release in March of 02, the lead single was Great Romances of the 20th Century Cute without the E cut from the team is the album's third track. It wasn't released as a single, but it did have a video. No chart history here, but this became the defining song from this album. I remember my brother at the time was really big into emo pop. Not so much emo, like deeply, but when there was a melodic song from this genre that came out and sort of hit his ears, he would save it on a mix CD. And boy, this song was one of the... Three to five songs that was on every other CD that he made around this time. But this is that next part of the evolution. Sunny Day Real Estate Dashboard Confessional set the tone for all this. A little more sort of mellower, a little more left or right of center. Sunny Day Real Estate was definitely harder edged, but a little bit earlier in time. This is the moment where the fan base sort of is there for the uh, for the band. There are a lot of millennials who wear their heart on their sleeve as we've talked about and this is music that is tailor made for them.
0: I have an official emo consultant. He's my uh, my friend who used to work with me. He's almost exactly 10 years younger t- than me. Uh there was one of my mentees. He now lives in New York, but I I ran by, by some selections uh And he gave this one two thumbs up and agrees that this is kind of the peak of emo pop and that it was one that we had to do. So it gets the blessing from our emo consultant. It's funny because like I said, this sort of style completely was not on my radar. And then listening to this, I realized that about 10 years ago or about 10 years after this, I went full into this, but it wasn't because of like these actual emo bands. It was because I got really into Frank Turner, and Frank mm-hmm. Turner is basically just a slightly older guy doing emo. And it's not, you know, it's not a coincidence. He got his start doing like post-hardcore and sort of emo adjacent stuff. He was the lead singer of a band called you know, Mongol Horde, and he sort of ran in these circles a little bit. There are some of the key changes in this, like you said, some of the pace changes. It's like. This is stuff that Frank Turner was doing in his albums, like, you know, tape that card and stuff that was, you know, 10, 12 years later that I absolutely love. So hearing this, there was this ridiculous familiarity to it. And lyrically, I think some of the stuff's a little bit different. Like I said, you know, he's writing from like this, you know, slightly older point of view, but it's the same sort of general idea where he's just sort of pouring his emotion, putting his heart on his sleeve and things like that. And it's funny because as much as I've sort of, I don't want to say I've bashed it, but if I've sort of, you know, cast dispersions on some of that. I realize I find myself guilty as charged. It's just a slightly different, uh, a slightly different version of this.
1: This is another genre where I'm not a huge fan, but when it's good, when it's really good and the artist is technically proficient and melodically sound, I will appreciate it and I can listen to it. Like I, I love this song. I do love this song. Um, The whining can be too much in emo pop but there's a definite sense of musicianship that is lacking in other emo pop. And what they do here sort of builds the template for the genre. You have driving guitar riffs that feel very glam metal to me. You have the call and response. How about I'm outside by your window? How about I'm outside by... That is a thing that shows up in like 80% of emo pop songs over the next 10 years and a lot of modern rock songs even over the next 10 to 15 years. The stacked vocal melodies, the rolling drum patterns, all hallmarks of the genre, too. And they create an overwhelming sense of drama. Plus, they change the structure toward the end of the record. So there's enough twists and turns to keep you invested. And again, that's why I think this rises above the crop of emo pop of the time. Taking Back Sunday is a really good band, very talented. And this is the piece.
0: Yeah, I think this has just the right amount of edge, you know, where it's like you said, it's got it's a good song that then adds that sort of, you know, cutting, sort of biting nature to it. That is a supplement. It's not it doesn't overtake the song. And that's what makes it sort of a good sort of overall package.
1: You know what time it is, Chris? Our fourth song from 2002 is A Left Turn for sure. It's Nelly. Hot and her. that embarrassing the way i said hot and her i don't know that's how supposed gonna, to say it i mean
0: that's definitely how you're supposed to say it i will say it like uh, the uh, my favorite is you can't find this cited any place because it's almost certainly just apocryphal but is that there's some quote of him saying that it has an extra r because it was so hot <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's brilliant <laughs> Cornell R.L. Haynes Jr. was born in Austin, Texas, but is known for his upbringing in St. Louis. In high school, Nelly, his stage name, together with his friends Ali, Murphy Lee, Kaiwan, Wan, Slowdown, and his half-brother City Spud, formed the St. Lunatics. This is 1993. They spent nearly a decade trying to break through, but never could get past regional success, primarily because nobody took seriously rappers in the huge swath of America south of Chicago and north of Houston. Dismayed by the lack of success for the St. Lunatics, Nelly got the group's blessing to go solo. He produced a bunch of demos, sending them nationwide until Universal Records bit. They signed Nelly and sold him as the Midwest alternative to the East, West, and South. Nelly leaned into that, and his first single country grammar, Hot Shit, was a success and garnered enough goodwill to convince the label to record a full album of the same name in 2000. After scoring three top 20 hits... Nelly would headline the Super Bowl halftime show and follow up with his 2002 album Nellyville. Hot in Hair was the lead single. This was a smash. This was a number one hit, I believe, wasn't it? I believe this was a
0: number one. This was, uh, you know, yeah, like you said, this is a huge hit. I mean, this was every place for a while, and it's, and rightfully so. It's like, I've had a hard time coming up with uh, too much to say about this other than just it's fun and it's like it accomplishes exactly what he was trying to do, yeah. right? It's like this is supposed to be a fun song about having fun, and you're not supposed to think too hard about it. Of all of all, so many of these songs we've talked about, it's just they're everywhere for so long that you do kind of get like sick of them, perhaps. But it's like when you go back and try to listen to it with fresh ears again, it still sounds really good.
1: You don't have to think too much, but when your three-year-old is in the car singing, it's getting hot in here, so take off all your clothes, you do have to raise the flag a little bit. <laughs> this is definitely about sex. It's about being horny. So, you know, it's it's there. But it's such a meme, a relic, a symbol of its time, overplayed, overly universal. But Nelly is so engaging. You can see why he was so successful. I love that keyboard that essentially serves as a rhythmic marker. It is the dopiest keyboard pattern, but it's perfect because it offsets what Nelly's giving you, which is this very engaging persona.
2: Stop pacing, time wasting. I got a friend with a pole in the basement. What? I'm just kidding like Jason.
3: Oh.
2: Uh. Unless you're gonna do it. Extra, extra. Yeah. Spread the news. And yeah. like Nelly took a trip from the to the Neptune. Yeah,
0: I mean, this is the first of, we have many tracks on this one that are, that were hugely popular, despite having potentially, I'll say, problematic lyrics. Uh, I don't necessarily want to be, I'm not going to be judgmental about that, but it's interesting to just sort of, I don't know, it's worth noting. I mean, we've come, you know, going way back, I mean, you mentioned we've been doing this since... uh, we first talked about like 1951 and things like 60 Minute Man and even like shake, rattle and roll where there's all these like double entendres. But as you get it's a you're right. It's sort of there's this funny thing, especially as you're a parent and you've got these kids who are listening to these things to say to sort of sing along with you, know, like sing along with these lyrics that are very sort of overtly sexual and I don't know. It's like, again, I don't want to be judgmental, but I don't think there's a right answer. It's certainly the, the answer is not don't listen to this because that doesn't work. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of the songs in this episode in particular. We've had a lot over the years, but particularly it seems like in this episode, there's some that have these sort of, you know, interesting sort of overtones. But uh, again, it's like if you turn your brain off and just have this on,
1: it's fun. And that's what I think it's just really meant to be. And Hot and Her is very popular and impactful because it is probably Nelly's quintessential record. Maybe not as influential, but Nelly himself is really influential. So much like Avril Lavigne, complicated, and Usher in our 2001 episode, Nelly has a lot of country in him. Country Grammar is a statement all about Black St. Louis culture and how that's country. Ride With Me, which we didn't nominate, although we might for the Veterans Committee, we both really enjoy that one, is a damn country song to its core. Hot in Hair is much more of a four-on-the-floor rap dance track, but the word is her. He doesn't mince. You know, like Usher, he's a hugely important artist. As he starts building the bridge between rap and country, that would be completed within a decade. And now you can't even understand like what's country and what's rap anymore because a lot of them are so intertwined.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple more in this episode that'll bring this back up, but it's almost like it, things have completely come full circle where we where there's sort of we've talked a lot about the sort of breaking down of the genres and now we're sort of in this world that's squarely hip hop in some ways but is to your point borrowing from, you know, country and from the music that in many circles would have been considered less cool. That was our fourth nominee. Chris, what's our fifth? Our fifth nominee is Clips with Grindin from May of 2002.
3: From ghetto to ghetto, the backyard to yard, I sell it whip on whip, and soft to hard. I'm the neighborhood pusher, call me subwoofer, cause I pump bass like that Jack on the off the track. I'm heavy, cause ball to your father, you can duck to the Betty Gov. Sorry, my love, but I'm seeing through these eyes. Ben's convoys with the wagon on the side, only big boys keep deuces on the ride. Gucci Chuck Taylor with the dragon on the side. Man, I make a buck why scram I'm trying to show y'all who the fuck I am The Jews is flirting Be damned if I'm hurting Legend in two games like I'm Peewee Kirkland Platinum on the block with consistent hits Why for real keep talking this music shit grindin.
1: Hold on a second You gotta say it the right way You gotta say grindin'
0: <laughs> They say that every time I guess
1: That's,
0: <laughs> I, How many times do you think they say Grindin' in this song? Oh, boy. <laughs> you got to do a count.
1: Hopefully, hopefully not that many. Oh, boy, <laughs> the way you said it. I don't know. <laughs> Quite a few. Yeah. Gene Thornton was born in 1972. His brother Terrence Thornton, 77. Both were born in the Bronx, but the family moved to Virginia Beach early on. In 92, the brothers formed a rap group. They'd call it Clips. Gene would call himself Malicious, then Malice, while Terrence would call himself Terrar. They'd start selling drugs, leading their parents to kick Gene out of the house, but they would also meet an up-and-coming producer named Pharrell Williams of the Neptunes, who we've talked about extensively. Pharrell got them a contract with Electro Records in 97, an album was planned, a single was released, but they fell flat and were dropped from the label. Terrence changed his name from Terrar to Pusha T, and he'd start cutting verses for other Neptunes-produced songs. With Williams a star in his own right, he'd started an imprint for Arista Records called Star Trek and signed clips in 2001. An album was planned, called Lord Willen, produced by the Neptunes and led by the single Grindin'. Williams nearly gave the beat to Jay-Z, who was in the process of recording a follow-up to his acclaimed The Blueprint album. I can't imagine what Grindin' would sound like with Jay-Z, although I kind of can because he was doing a lot of Neptune stuff at the time too. I'm glad that this went to push a T. Clips because it does set this guy on his career. Pusha T is a big, big star now in rap music and has really helped define what post-mafioso rap sounds like in the street, gritty way. And this was a hit, number thirty in the U.S., number eight on the Hot Rap Songs chart. This also, those sounds like a shift in what rap production is going to be.
0: Yeah, this was definitely the song of this episode that grew on me as far as mm-hmm. when it was first there and I listened to it, it was like it felt really kind of sparse and uh, and I enjoy like It was fine, but I didn't get a lot out of it. But every time I listened to it, there was a little bit more there and really, really clever, just sort of sonically in the production. Uh, just so much going on and it really does it's like that spareness the more you listen to it is so well done and intentional that it makes the elements that are like some of the other production elements really stand out and it does really help create this picture of sort of grittiness and being on the street and this grind i mean it's like it really is uh i this is a really really well-produced song i mean i had i've talked about shay serrano's rap yearbook before and i had so i knew this song because this is what this features in that book. And I'd gone and downloaded all the songs that were in that book a couple of years ago and I got it and listened to them. But I hadn't listened to it probably since then. So it you know came on, I was kinda of like, oh, this is okay. But every time I went by, I listened to it. So this was that, you know, pleasant surprise of this episode.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of contemporaries in rap at this point producing records that are street records, but they're doing it in a different way think of a just blaze who is taking samples soul samples and things like that and turning them into these little story productions. And then you have Swiss beats who works a lot with Jay-Z and Swiss is all about sort of layering instruments and doing these very dramatic sort of things to kind of play up the drama of the streets. Whereas you have here, like you said, this very sparse sound, it's still futuristic too. They're doing the futuristic Neptune's thing, but This is minimal drums, lots of space, kind of taking cues from Timbaland again, as he was doing the same thing with his production lately. And this would be a hallmark of hip hip hop production going forward. In fact, the Neptunes would have an even more accomplished record, I think in the next two years, I believe, with Snoop Dogg's Drop It Like It's Hot, which really takes the sparseness to a whole new level and creates this unbelievable production. I'm going to say right now that that's probably going to be a nominee for the Hall of Songs when we get
3: there that seems like yeah, like it. me shining Riding. Riding. You know what i keep in a aligning is <laughs> better stay in line with y'all looking at like me shining
0: yeah, I mean, I'm going to steal something from Shea Serrano from his book because it, it, I think it sums up a lot of what you're saying. I love that sort of that banging sound and some of the, yeah. you know, what's going on. And, it's like, and this is what, what Serrano says. It sounded like someone was beating on the garage door, which connected it to the past. But it also sounded like someone was trying to make a phone call from outer space, which connected it <laughs> to the future, which I love. It's, it's actually a great fit for our next nominee as well. It sort of connects everything together in very weird ways. But I just think that's exactly right, is. That it's got this sort of you're listening to so many things going on at once while listening to this tale of, you know, drug dealing and life on the streets.
1: And may I just mention, as I said, Pusha T at the top, and how he's sort of the first in this next line of MCs taking from the mafioso rap culture and turning it into something new. He's completely open and serious about his story not making things up and jay-z wu-tang clan they would be doing that kind of thing too but pusher really takes us to a whole new dimension and is kind of coming at you from an everyman sort of way whereas you know jay Z is very much glamorizing some of the stuff that he does push is very raw and very real about it and he is going to be the leading name in this kind of style of rap over the next two decades still doing it today still unbelievable The cacophony of sounds of our sixth nominee from 2002 means I am very happy, Chris. I'm very happy. This is one of my favorite artists of all time. I love LCD Sound System, and this is the first shot that LCD Sound System takes in music in the world. This is, of course, Losing My Edge.
2: Yeah, I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge. The kids... Are coming up from behind I'm losing my edge I'm losing my edge To the kids from France And from London But I was there I was there in 1968 I was there at the first Can show in Cologne.
0: So this is obviously, you know, primarily a dance rock song, and I think the lyrics are in some ways not what people remember of it. But this has more of the stereotypical early Gen X lyrics than anything any other song sort of crammed into one.
1: Yeah, it's it's a and it's a song that really is all about growing old and realizing that you might not have it anymore and being scared of that, and I think that's something that even me, who's not a Gen Xer, can relate to from time to time. Well, not time to time, all the time. James Murphy was born in 1970, Princeton Junction, New Jersey, a record omnivore. He started playing in bands as a teen. He joined the gothic rock group Falling Man, releasing an album in 1988 called A Christening. He went to NYU, dropped out, nearly became a writer for the sitcom Seinfeld, and he fronted the rock trio Pony, which released an album in 1994 called Cosmo Validator. It's on Spotify! It's interesting. In 2002, Murphy formed LCD Sound System as a live band featuring his friends, and they'd play house parties throughout Brooklyn, combining electronic music, dance beats, and art rock. At this time, they were Murphy, vocals and bass, among other things, Pat Mahoney on drums, and Nancy Wang on keys. Meantime, Murphy would DJ parties as well, and while playing more obscure stuff, he'd wonder if this would be the peak of his coolness. Then he heard other DJs spinning similar stuff, and he thought, oh, maybe I'm not as cool as I thought. So he wrote and started performing a song about that, Losing My Edge, and released it through his own self-made label, DFA Records. It caught heat in the New York club scene, and Mahoney isn't on this track. Alex Epton plays a synth on this track. This was released in July of 2002. It would not be heard by everybody everywhere until 2005 and LCD's first actual album, self-titled. But enough people heard this song in 2002. It was all over the blogs and things like that, as we talked about the blog era. And it doesn't change between here and 2005. So we felt like this was the place to put this record.
0: Yeah, I think it really belongs here. And like I said, in the, when we were uh, talking about grinding, it's like, this is the future and this is the phone call from outer space. And the phone call from outer space is James Murphy calling and saying he's worried that the kids are catching up to him. It's both him worrying now, it's him from the future sort of uh, you know, chastising himself today. And it's also himself today sort of talking to you know, the younger him. It's all of these things kind of put together. Uh, and like you said, I mean, that's exactly the the point of the idea of getting old, losing your edge, the kids are coming up from behind you, and all of that—it's—it's uh, uh, it's wild to be able to do that in this song. That's kind of a, ostensibly, you know, a dance song or this electronic song that isn't, you know, necessarily lyrically focused.
1: And I also think it doubles as a love letter to a lot of the artists that are on the fringes, the indie darlings, the ones that the DJs spin and think nobody's going to know who this is, and I do, and people are going to love it, and they're going to wonder who it is. Like, there are tons of artists he shouts out in the song. Everyone from the Slits to the Sonics, all of that. And then he does this great thing where he references Gil Scott Heron and the way that his voice is all harmonized when he sings Gil Scott Heron feels like this purposeful thing as in he wants to shout out Gil on this very deep level but also I think there's a nod to fake people who use Gil Scott Heron as a reference for something real without even knowing his whole thing his whole catalog so there's a lot of double going on here and it's really clever uh, it's a song that shouts out the great The people who made the DJs great while at the same time, this reference to saying, oh, no, you know, as a DJ, my life might not be as great as it once was because I'm about to lose my edge. Uh, But this is also on another level, the era of the mixtape, the mp three, the DIY single that becomes a massive hit without major label help. This is the early example of how you can make something, put it out yourself, and it becomes a hit in the 2000s, 2010s and such. Uh, James Murphy is really a pioneer in this
0: yes my my personal favorite is from the near the beginning with i was there at the first Ken shown in cologne
1: yeah <laughs> which is like
0: i mean there's a lot going on here right because it's like that obviously as he says is 1968 so it's two years before he was born so right. he was not actually there and then he but he then he talks about like i'm losing my edge to the internet seekers who can tell me every member of every good group from 1962 to 1978 <laughs> was is obviously still going on it's the whole sort of meme about oh yeah you're a fan of this you gave me three of their songs or whatever but it's funny because it's like because Murphy is sort of like mocking this idea and sort of scoffing at it. He is one of these people, though, too, without oh, a doubt. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why he's name dropping Ken and Captain Beefheart and all this stuff. And there's a line, the line about, you know, I was the first guy playing Daft Punk to the Rock Kids. Like that's right. not that then is jumping forward and it is actually him. Right. It's like there's this braggadocio here and it's like I think he knows that so there's some sort of like self-consciousness maybe he doesn't know it all the way that he quite sort of what a character he is being but uh but yeah, yeah. I mean it's there's so many like that little subtleties going in and uh all with this just sort of massive sound that's that you know it, that is it's like without the lyrics it would still be a really really interesting listen but with all of that glued together it's just sort of a it is this sort of mammoth
2: track 86 87 70s. I hear you're buying a synthesizer and an arpeggiator and throwing your computer out the window because you want to make something real. You're My
1: ready. favorite line is when he goes, I have a CD compilation of every song ever made by everybody. Every great song. He says it in this very, like, <laughs> fool of himself sort of way, right? The Beach Boys, the Modern Lovers tracks. Like, ah, it's great. Hits me hard, too, because I was the kid who had every great Beach Boys song would tell people, you know, they did these songs in 1972 that are incredible. <laughs> Have you listened to Holland? Have you listened to Holland? Um, but – what I love about James Murphy is he knows when to pull the string because it does go on. And you're wondering when his whole bragging is going to stop. And then he finally pulls a string and the big backbeat comes in. And that's sort of like the EDM, like that moment where the beat really hits and it takes you to another level. He was one of the first ones doing this. And when that beat does hit and you finally like get to sort of space out and dance, it's a great moment. And he would master that over and over in his career.
0: All right. So that is our sixth nominee, which means it's halftime. Time for us to take a little bit of a break, reset, you know, clear our heads a little bit before going on to nominate six more songs. Uh, what do we need to do at halftime? I guess. Uh, should we tell people where to go listen to us? Should we tell people, uh, you know, what else do we have out there? I guess we got some. Obviously, 2001 was before this. We got some results shows. We got some other stuff out there.
1: We got some great bonus episodes, everything from interviews with people that we really appreciate and like in the music industry and music writers and beyond that. Go listen to those old episodes wherever you find our podcast in the feed there. Our most recent bonus episode is a look at 2,000 from the nominee standpoint. We came up with a list of 60 songs that we felt were good enough to be nominated. And from that point, we actually nominated songs. But that's a a look into our process, essentially. We have a bonus coming up which is our Veterans Committee episode in which Chris and I will put our heads together and go through four years, the last four years in Hall of Songs. So this will be 1999 to 2002. And we will nominate four songs for the Hall of Songs that we felt from that era are worthy that we didn't nominate previously. Uh, And then we'll also talk about some things that we like from that era as well. But yeah, as I said up top, we did this in the beginning of the episode. Follow us wherever you see podcasts. You find it. Well, listen to us wherever you see podcasts. Give us a five star rating and a review at the podcast app and Apple Podcasts and all that. Please do so. We could use those great reviews. Really can. So please, if you haven't yet, please do so. Go to podcasts and five stars, give us a good review. And then on social media, we are at Twitter at Hall of Songs, Instagram at Hall of Songs, Facebook.com slash Hall of Songs, and email us at Hall of Songs Pod, Hall of Songs P O D at Gmail.com. Anything else, Chris? Not on my end. Okay, I took. Up we got all some the good songs
0: there. in the, We got some good songs in the second half, though. So
1: don't go away. Yeah, please do whatever you do. Do not go away.
0: All right, Tim. It gives me great pleasure to announce our seventh nominee. One of my favorite bands that we have avoided talking about thus far. The Flaming Lips make their debut on All the Songs with "Do You Realize."
2: Do you?
1: We have avoided them because boy, they're stinky. <laughs> have you heard their stuff before two thousand two? Oh, no, come on. No. Kidding.
0: Kidding. Don't make me go on a, a ten minute rant about the softball. And
1: I'll talk about Zyrika. I'm one of the <laughs> Zareka <also> people. <laughs> Oklahoma City's The Flaming Lips had been around for almost 20 years by 2002. Frontman Wayne Coyne, the band's only consistent member, brought together his brother Mark, Michael Evans, and Dave Totska in 1983. They became locally famous for their raucous live shows and ultimately drawing the attention of Warner Brothers following a show where their pyrotechnics almost burned down the venue. 1993's transmissions from the satellite Heart brought them their first taste of real success in the form of the single, She Don't Use Jelly. The follow-ups, though, while critically lauded, failed to capitalize on the success of its radio hit. That includes 1997's Zyrica, an inventive album of four separate discs, each featuring a different audio track from the same source material. Play them together for full songs. Play any combination of them for another experience altogether. Then came 99's The Soft Bulletin, which saw the lips focus more on melody and give a bit more thought to their lyrics. That did very well. For a follow-up, the band created a pseudo-concept album called Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. The 2002 album features recurring themes and characters, including the titular Yoshimi, named after Japanese multi-instrumentalist Yoshimi Piwei, who appeared as a guest on the album. Do You Realize was released as a single a month after the album's release. The band at this point is Wayne Coyne singing, playing guitar and keys, Evans on bass and keys, Cliff Spurlock on drums, and Steven Drozd on guitar. So I remember being in college at the newspaper that we worked at, student newspaper, and one of my friends and co-workers at the time came in one day with this CD and said, we got to play this. And it was right after Yoshimi came out that fall and just being dumbfounded on how great it was. It was my introduction to the Flaming Lips. Well, I mean, I had heard she don't use jelly a lot, but this is my introduction to them as really what they are known as, and this song just popped in a way that other songs in my life at the time had not popped. This is a tremendous record. It's a really beautiful song.
0: Yeah. I mean, this was a constant uh, presence, the CD in my in my truck in fall of 2002, as I was driving around in Chicago and other places, it was there all the time. I have to mention, Coyne is a character. He is mm, the mm-hmm. primary character in... Uh, in many ways. And he is also a literary character. He is a character in one of my maybe one of my five or 10 favorite books of all time, which is actually a nonfiction book called Boomtown. The, Sam Anderson was a guy who was read freelancing and New York Times wanted to send him to cover the Oklahoma City Thunder with uh, with Westbrook, uh, Durant, and Hardin. And he said, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But what I will do is I'll go spend an entire year with them. And he wrote an entire book on the history of Oklahoma City that talks about the, the Sooners and the land grab. And it talks about the... Uh, Oklahoma City, the the bombings, and it talks about the tornadoes and weathermen and their But one of the most incredible scenes is where he rides around in the back of a truck, perhaps uh, indulging in some psychedelics as they they dump actual just cans of paint, making a rainbow through the streets of Oklahoma City with Wayne Coyne as the leader. It's like he's a cult figure in Oklahoma City, and he has been for. I mean, now 40 years and is still sort of this legendary figure. He's larger than life and their music is kind of exists in this alter era, this alter sort of world, I guess, where it's like, it's never been that popular, but everybody you talk to who has listened to the Flaming Lips is like, ah, yes, they kind of get it. And they just sort of like exist in this plane out there where they're making this kind of creative psychedelic music that blends a bunch of different styles together and yet speaks to
1: people. Yeah, keyboards and computerized synthesized sounds with some guitar, with some drums. It's not far away from what Timbaland's doing in hip hop. It's just a different blend of that. And within the context of this album, this album is terrific. And then when you finally hear, do you realize in the sighing one, two, three, four, the world literally opens up? The sun starts shining. This is a beautiful moment of music. But the falling drum pattern, the swelling strings, the driving and purposeful bridge, the massive climax within the record. I think it's one of the best single songs, at least of my generation of this time. And I feel like it's actually an update, specifically as I talk about the context of the song within its album and where it lies sort of in that climax. It's like an update of Comfortably Numb. It's like the Comfortably Numb for Millennials. It's overly optimistic. It has this great message to it. It's hard on its sleeve. It's swelling. It's that opposite sort of feeling of Comfortably Numb, which is all about, you know, we're going to numb you because the pain is so terrible.
0: Yeah, so I've been I've brought this up over the last couple episodes I've been really interested just sort of because of my own sort of the the era where I wasn't listening to as much music and these gaps but like is thinking about where sort of like the evolution of things I mentioned in the last one, we talked about like the strokes as to me, it was like, that's where the Beatles would have been if they would have just sort of kept making music. Like to me, this is where the birds would have been yeah, okay. if they had just existed for another 30 years. It's like both lyrically and this kind of, like you said, there's sort of this spiritual element to it, but it's not sort of overly spiritual. It's more sort of being in touch with the world and being in touch with yourself in the real the real actual world but there's this psychedelic element to it that has always been in the flaming lips uh like in the flaming lips world and as much as i love the soft parade uh this to is such a leap forward to me as far as piecing together that creativity that the flaming lips had the lyrics the melody and really doing it well like the soft parade is kind of fun because it's a little bit of a mess here and there this album really really sticks together from front to back and this is a standout track it's like even if it wasn't for the fun of that entire album i mean to your point this is really in and of itself just this really perfectly produced pop track that is you know again it wasn't like it was charting and it wasn't like it was like everybody in the world was listening to it but it really does sort of hit home it's like this is when i think If it would have been sort of more in the mainstream, for whatever reason, I think it would have, could have done really well. I think people who would have, everybody who heard this liked it.
1: Yeah. As you said, not that popular. I mean, it was a top 40 track in the UK, but it didn't chart at all in the US. This to me, to your point, right? This is, for me, my first year of college. I'm new in a place. I'm meeting all these people. My life is kind of starting in some way. And on top of that, we are removed one year from 9-11, and we're still kind of navigating this weird world that is now taking place where war can start at any time. We don't know what's around the next corner. We're trying to sort of piece everything together. And this message of be good to yourself and to everyone in this life right now really hit me in this very, very serious way, this very... um what's the word I'm looking for? Just, just a very like emotional way at this time. And I think it probably hit for a lot of people at this time as we were trying to navigate the new world. And music had been so bleak and so real up until this point. Everything was grimy. Everything was angry and things like that. This is this beautiful burst of utopian positivity. And I think that's, to my point again, what makes this an incredible feat because you had this band that is Boomers, Wayne Coyne is 62 years old. They became a band for Gen Xers as they hit their peak in their early days and here they are sort of repackaging themselves as a band for millennials because they are colorful, they are psychedelic, they are happy and they had this message of things will be okay and that hits a lot home for a lot of us from our generation.
0: Yeah, they really are one of the great bands at crossing over uh, to the extent that there is a divide that gen x uh, millennial divide
1: they ain't no foo fighters <laughs> speaking of popular bands <laughs> gonna... very popular bands our eighth nominee from 2002 is our first on the hall of songs from coldplay this is clocks lights
2: go out and i can be seen. tides that i tried to swim
1: Ah, Coldplay. Time to have the Coldplay discussion, Chris. (laughs) Uh, Which one of the songs
0: is this? They all sound the same.
1: Oh, come on. (laughs) This is the one that sounds like the U2 song.
0: Oh, okay. That one.
1: one. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Vocalist, keyboardist, guitarist Chris Martin, guitarist Johnny Buckland, bassist Guy Berryman, and drummer Will Champion came together at University College London, first appearing as a foursome in early 98. They jumped into the Camden Club scene, and after a successful gig at a dance hall called Dingwalls, Martin's buddy Phil Harvey agreed to manage them. They locally released a few EPs, scored some live bookings, helping them to build a bigger following. While touring around the UK, the band found time to record several songs, which ultimately would become the album Parachutes. That debuted to a ton of hype, immediately hit number one on the UK Albums chart. It took a bit more time to catch on in America, but would go to double platinum here as well. With Parachute still on the charts, Coldplay hit the studios again in London to record the follow-up, A Rush of Blood to the Head. Clocks is the album's fifth track and would ultimately be its third single. Like Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots, Rush of Blood to the Head was introduced to me in college through a friend in my dormitories who was really into Coldplay early on And she shared with me this and I was like, oh, well, this is good music. And I started downloading everything on Napster and it dawned on me that this was essentially like an update of U2 and of that sort of big 80s thematic anthemic rock sound. But they do it so well and they do it in this very 2002 way that is very crisp and very well produced and very succinct to the point.
0: Yeah, I mean, what strikes me about listening to this is that, and I think this is exactly in line with what you're saying, is like they set out to be an arena band, which is sort of a, it's like you don't hear that much anymore. It's like a lot of bands sort of start out doing one thing and maybe they develop their sound and then they get bigger or they uh, you know, tweak things here and there. And then as they get more popular, they do this. But it's like Coldplay from day one was kind of like, we're going to go play big places we're going to go play glastonbury we're going to go play wembley and we're going to go we want large you know large crowds so we're making this sound and there's something about that sound that it's like it's not like it's loud and it's not like it's you know it's like anthemic right or so there's some sort of quality to it that it it Carries on well when there are large crowds singing it there's less subtlety maybe than some things
1: sure
0: uh there's a lot of melody, but it 's like melody that doesn 't sort of get you know blown away with like large crowds and things like that and it's it's interesting to sort of go back in time before they were that big i mean they were big by this when this came out but it's like to go back in time and just sort of hear this sort of like it's kind of a bold statement and you know thinking about it like in retrospect there's something about that that i i have some respect for that is kind of we're not here to make music that is going to sound really good in the clubs like Dingwalls. we're here to make music that's going to be like blasted from a stage at a state at a stadium
1: yeah and i actually really like coldplay i'm like unabashedly a fan uh Milo Zilato might be my favorite Coldplay album, weirdly enough. Might not be most people's favorite. But what they do really well, and you said it, they make a lot of great anthemic music and it just sort of works that way. But they also take a lot of things from the past and put them into this blender that is their own, and it comes out as cold play music. The rolling piano riff and clocks is basically little Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis just slowed down. Or it's Elton John's Tiny Dancer. It lives in Breeze in the past. The rumbling bass line, as I said, peak U2. That bassline is a U two bassline. Chris Martin is a more legible Tom York, a less legible John Lennon. Lots of music at this time is taken from a number of influences from the fifties up until now. Coldplay plays definitely in that. Maybe to answer the question that I asked in our latest results episode, maybe Coldplay just took U 2s whole thing, and U two became old news the second that Coldplay blew up. Maybe people decided to get sick of U two when Coldplay kind of became the new U two. That could be true.
0: And then, who did people move on to when they got sick of Coldplay?
1: Um, hmm. Good question.
0: The Foo Fighters.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe it was. Maybe there. it was the. I mean, the Foo Fighters were already there. Yeah, yeah. Good question.
0: But they then became big again. They sort of became more big. I don't don't know. It's interesting. No, it's like, I think I really like Coldplay. This, This was a very interesting era, especially with Parachutes, where it was like, I had a lot of people I'd run into who were always talking about Coldplay. And then when this came out, it was sort of the same thing. And I just didn't... Like I didn't know these songs. Like they weren't all over the place. And then I'd go listen to them and be like, Yes, that is a really good song. And then I would never go back to it. I don't think I ever owned a Coldplay CD. I don't even think I had anything burned. And then I got into Coldplay a little bit more with X and Y, which was a couple years after this. Yeah. And that was like to me it was, you know, that by then we were purely in the you know, MP3 download iPod era where you didn't even have to own anything. Uh, so I think I really like Coldplay. I I like this track a lot. I like going back and listening to a "Rush of Blood to the Head." I was being mostly facetious, but not one hundred percent. When I do think there's a similarity to some of their tracks, that is like it's not a criticism. When you do something well, you should it, But it's like, I do think it sometimes is hard to distinguish when I haven't listened to them a while, well, like one track from the other. I mean, there were several singles from this. I had, it was funny and talking to people leading up to this, I had uh, a bunch of people be like, like there was a no brainer Coldplay song and like they were all different. Uh, so it's just an interesting thing to me that it's like they had that many songs, but it's like, I think that's a compliment, right? That it's like there were these, they had so many things that they did that were that good. Um, But anyway, I think I really like Coldplay. Uh, They're sort of out there with me as a band that I've never really, really gotten my head around uh, as much as I probably should. Although I have been to
1: Dingwalls. It's a good place. Yeah, I had to add in that it was a club because you didn't (laughs) do that in the write-up because you probably had been there and you know England. I figured that was kind of a given, wasn't it? No, it wasn't a given. I was like, what the hell is Dingwalls? (laughs) I don't know what that means. All right, introduce our ninth nominee. We're going to
0: go down to Texas for Spoon. It's about time we talk about Spoon. Actually, this is really the first time we could talk about Spoon. Spoon with <laughs> the way we get by from August of 2002. We can-
1: Want to talk about Spoon's of uh, post hardcore stuff when they started out? <laughs> yeah. Austin, Texas, 93. Singer guitarist Britt Daniel and drummer Jim Eno, who were then in a band called the Alien Beats, decided to form a band. They took their name from a track by legendary German art rockers Can. I'm sure James Murphy is very much pumping his fist right now. <laughs> they would become a trio and release their debut album, Telefono, in 1996. That release, which was pretty heavily influenced by post-punk bands like Wire and Pavement, garnered mixed reviews and little in the way of commercial success. After a few EPs in full lengths going from post-punk to art-punk, Spoon finally found the right place, Merge Records, which had been founded by the members of Super Chunk and had helped Neutral Milk Hotel and the Magnetic Fields, find success. An EP, Love Ways, and a full-length album in 2001, the very Elvis Costello-y Girls Can Tell, sold reasonably well and got good reviews. They'd follow that up by going from New Wave to a more minimalist sound for Kill the Moonlight. The Way We Get By was not released as a single and is the album's second track. The band at this time is still a trio, Daniel, Eno, and bassist Josh Zarbo. Not a single, and I was not aware of Spoon at all in 2002. I was listening to Flaming Lips, and I was listening to Nelly, and whatever else was popular and indie, but also My Speed. And yet, I know the way we get by very well. I enjoy the way we get by very well. And I think that's because Spoon has this lasting power. They're still obviously around today, still making albums, still very, very vital. But this song, their first big sort of this is Spoon song, has remained this very impactful and influential song for a very long time.
0: So you weren't watching The O.C. is what you're saying?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. All my friends were, but I was not. I was,
0: you didn't no. watch The O.C.? Welcome oh, my goodness. OC, Meg, and I watched, Meg and I watched The O.C. religiously.
1: Yeah, it was I mean, really all the, like, it was really big. It was really big. Everybody in college was watching it. But I don't like soap opera stuff like that. I just don't. I'm not But it was it.
0: like but watching the OC was watching a soap opera that knew it was a soap opera. I mean, it was great from minute 1. And the music in the OC was incredible. And this was on the this was on the OC's first soundtrack. They had many. For me, like I will admit there's a big part of this that is personal. You know, I m- many listeners will sort of, you know, regret this, I suppose, because they're stuck listening to me now. But I would say it's probably a, it's a, only a slight overstatement to say that, like, if this album didn't exist in this track in particular, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. I kind of had fallen completely off of the new music radar. I you know talked about this in the past couple of episodes. I would listen to Wilco nonstop, classic rock. I had country radio on sometimes when I had no interest in like new albums that were coming out. And even going back to the last song, like Coldplay was kind of this thing that was like there, but I was never going to go buy Coldplay or go listen to that. I I still remember I was sitting on a, a, my buddies in Chicago on the North side had this party and a few of us hung out late night. We were there after most of the party was done. And my, one of my friends just sort of threw this album on the stereo like late night. And it was like, every song came on and it was like, what is this? And I was like, I kept asking what it was, as though it was like a mix. And it was like, oh yeah, this is still Spoon. This is still Spoon. And it was like, I was like, go back to that one. Go back. And it was like, it blew my mind that people in 2002 were making this music. And I think to me, what sort of got me was, I, I loved, we, we've talked about this in the show, like I love the grunge era and I love some of the grunge era music, but the The rock world, and I'm saying that in the guitar rock world, you know, not sort of the big picture, but like, you know, people like white guys with guitars and things like that. So much music was defining itself either by being grunge or by putting itself against grunge. And it was like it was in this category or not, but like Spoon to me was the first band that I had heard. And there were lots of other bands doing this, but it was just my personal experience like that we're just like, forget all of that. We're just going to take all this that we've learned. We're going to take the music that our parents were listening to right. that we liked, the stuff that we did. We're just going to make music that we think sounds good. And we don't care what it is. It doesn't have to sound like this or that. We're just going to make music that sounds good. And it's us. And it's lasted them for 20 years. And to their credit, I still think they sound good. But this to me is still their opus and is the one that is like, I go back to this record all the time. And it was the one that, Like from minute one, just blew my mind.
1: So, as someone who was not in on Spoon early on, listening to this song, I'm getting a lot of the same stuff that you're getting. In that, this is the beginning of that slightly more mature vein of indie rock that pulls from a number of late bloomer influences like hardcore punk, AM pop, art rock, music for 35 to 42 year olds essentially, like the updated 10cc, the updated XTC. And Vampire Weekend would be the next one sort of in the evolutionary path where you're taking from the past and you're digging it from a place that maybe maybe people weren't considering like a place you would take it from. And they're doing that. Um, I hear a Joe Jackson piano wave influence here, very much so. Uh, As I said, their previous album had a lot of Elvis Costello in it. And they weren't a big fan of doing piano early on, but once they got comfortable with doing it, they felt that it was necessary. And I think... Absolutely, like they became the band that sort of took the piano and made it part of the rock canon in a way that like a Ben Folds or a Billy Joel or even a Joe Jackson wasn't doing as well as these guys were doing. And
2: that's still the day we give by, so the way we get by. That's still the-
1: Ultimately, they are knowledgeable about the past as much as their fans are. You know, the Flaming Lips were really good and stayed vital for so long because they were knowledgeable about how to evolve with the fans, the fans who were getting younger and more knowledgeable about music. As I've talked about in the past, millennials know a lot about a lot of different kinds of music. The Lips understood that. Spoon also understands that. And Spoon had that Gen X core like you from the early going, but they would Continue to be good and get more millennial fans because they understood how to evolve and how to bring in more music from the past, as you mentioned. So this is right in that that wheelhouse. This is a great single. It's a great single, and it really does start like an entire era of music where we're recalling things from the '70s and even the '60s. I mean, I can hear like Fleet Foxes is going to kind of like be in this vein much later on in the '2000s. Like that's all starting here.
0: Yeah, and even lyrically, it's got that sort of that homage to the youth in a way that's kind of, you know, winking and yet somehow knowing better. It's both mature and immature at the same time, lyrically, where it's sort of commenting on, like, these are just the things that kids do, right? But it's also coming from a place of a little bit more knowledge. And it's Mm. not, you're not, you know, it's like you're not supposed to think that the people are lost. It's just a little bit like, it's okay. Everybody's going to get over this. This is just how we are as kids. And I think that gives it a timeless quality too, is you can be a little bit older and listen to it and be like, I get it. That kind of takes me back to being a kid or you can be a kid and listen to it. And you can kind of be like, okay, that's us. I identify yeah, with that. Yeah. You know, there's like, it sort of, it does, uh, it manages somehow to cross generations in that way as
1: well. So our 10th nominee from 2002 is another one of the songs from this year where the first time I heard it, I was blown away. And I thought to myself, how are they doing new things? How are new things happening in music? This, of course, is Missy Elliott, back again on Hall of Songs with Work It. This
2: is a Missy Elliott one-time exclusive. Come on! Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. It's your primitive, it's when, yet. It's your primitive, it's what yet. If you got a big let me search it. To find out how hard I gotta work, yeah. It's your primitive
0: yeah it's good to have missy elliott back i think i mean this is to me the her like above everything else as great as she's been even from some of her other nominees this is like the one that just stands out
1: yeah i think it's either this or get your freak on or like kind of neck and neck but this one i think might leap over that just slightly slightly it's hard but this is this is right this is kind of probably that one so missy elliott back for the third time for the second straight year she followed miss e so addictive which we talked about in the 2001 episode by producing christina aguilera little kim and maya and pink and their cover of lady marmalade that track was recorded for boz lerman's moulin rouge and would rise to the top of the hot 100 She also co-wrote Oops, Oh My, an outstanding 2002 single by the R&B singer Tweet, who was ahead of the game by many years. Her solo follow-up was 2002's Under Construction, which would not only garner Grammy nominations for both Album of the Year and Best Rap Album, but would also go on to become the best-selling rap album ever by a female solo performer. Work It, like past Missy Work, was produced by Timbaland. For this song, for a good portion of Under Construction, Missy and Timbo would favor a sound that combined Timbaland's ever-evolving percussive production with samples of early and golden age hip-hop. And to that point, you have Blondie's Heart of Glass as the popping synth rhythm that you hear. That's Blondie's Heart of Glass, by the way, the beginning especially. You hear Run DMC's Peter Piper, which is that old-school hip-hop song. Bob James' taking Me to the Mardi Gras, which is a song that's sam- that is sampled by old-school hip-hop, so it's a sample of a sample. Uh, this was a huge hit, too. Number two in the U.S., number six in the U.K., number one on the Hot Rap Songs chart. What a record. What a phenomenal record.
0: It was – it made it to number two on the charts. There is – Something about me that is astonishing to think that this was the second most popular song in the country for so long. There is also something astonishing that it was not just number one for 20 straight weeks because it's that good. You know, it's like it's good. But uh, uh, we'll talk about why it didn't hit number one. And in fact, did you know, Tim, this is I just saw this before getting on. This is was number two for 10 straight weeks. Wow. There was one other song that did that was a foreigner song. That was also like number 10 for two straight or number two for 10 straight weeks without actually hitting number one. But it's like it's just this huge sort of titanic production. Think if you go look at just like 2002 in music, this is the song that just sort of pops to the top of the list, right? Because it is creative. It's doing new things. It is popular. So it's got that. And it's so, it's it's weird, it's kind of like, it's emblematic of the era, and I don't mean that in any way that it's like stuck in 2002, it's just, it is the perfect song Mm -hmm. for what was going on in 2002.
1: Yeah, the production has now evolved to the point where this is sort of one of the Mount Rushmore Timbaland productions, this one right here, because it combines everything he's been doing with the futuristic sounds, with the way to manipulate space in a record with adding these little noises that you wouldn't expect to hear in any sort of record putting them in and surprising you the elephant trumpet which is used every time misty is referencing a giant penis fantastic just perfect right (laughs) and then you have the reverse vocals which you would think the Beatles did it with rain, right? But it was more of a novelty back then when they did it. Here it is purposeful. Let's flip it and reverse it. And then she gives you that reverse vocal. There's something that like that seems like, oh, obvious. Like, why didn't anybody do this right. back then? And yet here it is, and it's perfect. Uh, also, this is a really lewd track. You know, one of the lewdest songs we've ever had on Hall of Songs. It's definitely dirtier than any rapper we've ever covered. It's a little bit problematic at times, especially toward the end where Missy does the Orientalism, makes references to slavery. But at the end of the day, you have this very assured, dirty vocal by Missy Elliott.
0: Yeah, this is what I was talking about a little bit when we were talking about Nelly. Uh, you know, we've got some songs here. We're sort of dealing with the like the more overt sexuality in some of the really, really popular songs. And this is one of those. I, I guess what I like about listening to this and sort of that from that frame is... Uh, you know, going back to some of the early female rappers that we talked about, like Salt and Peppa, even where it was like it wasn't apologetic, but there was almost this kind of sort of knowingness that it was like you're not expecting to hear it from us because we're you know we're women. It's like, but this is just kind of matter of fact. Missy Elliott being who she is, which I can't help but think is like cool and is like you know there's something like that i sort of you have to respect about that right it's just sort of being i don't even want to say honest because like you don't it's like it's but it's just being frank and just sort of There is, like, no holds barred in putting things out there, which is, you
2: know, very cool. Uh,
0: Again, it's like, I don't think there's necessarily a right answer to any of this, like, as far as what, you know, like, what you want to do as far as the is it like the lewdness and all that it's fine i'm not going to sort of think anything about it but what i kind of like about that is that it's got that it's very sort of of the day but like to your point there's also these throwbacks to like blondie and there's these throwbacks i mean that it begins with like a record scratch right where there's this like kickback to like 80s rap 80s hip-hop and it like at once is doing something that is very much of its own but also Uh, like what she said, even about spoon, interestingly, it's like it, like she very much knows her place in the history of where she is and knows that her listeners are going to know that history as well.
1: So that's work it by Missy Elliott, our 10th nominee from 2002, our 11th. I would imagine Chris is the one that was keeping work it at number two for so long.
0: Yes. Number one for 12 weeks. Uh, My son, Theo, will be very thrilled for me to let you know that our Atlanta nominee is Eminem's return with Lose Yourself from October 2002.
3: His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already, mom's spaghetti. He's nervous, but on the surface he looks calm and ready to drop palms. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd goes so loud. He opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. He's choking how? Everybody's choking now. The clock's run out. Time's up, over, plow Snap back to reality, oh, there goes gravity Oh, there goes rabbity. He choke He's so mad, but he won't give up baddies He know he won't have it, he knows His whole back to these ropes, it don't matter He's dope, he knows that, but he's pro. He's so stagnant, he knows when he goes back to this mobile home That's when it's back to the lab again, yo This old Rhapsody, better go capture this moment And hope it don't do it. Lose his mouth in the music, the moment you own
1: End of 2002, the radio, the world, was nothing but Nelly's Dilemma, which is a great, great, like, R&B crossover rap hit. Work it and lose yourself. That was it. That was the radio. This This is an amazing, amazing record. This is one of the best of our time. My opinion. Not the Billboard number one of the year, though. Hmm. How about that? (laughs) Billboard. Always, always fighting with me. (laughs) Okay. Eminem is back after a one-year break. Since we last checked in with him, he somewhat controversially performed 2000 nominees Stan with Elton John at the 2001 Grammy Awards. His next album, The Eminem Show, while not itself spawning any nominees in this episode, would go on to be the biggest selling album of the year. Eminem would then set his sights on acting, and for good reason. A movie based on his life was planned by Imagine Entertainment and Universal Pictures. Called 8 Mile after the famous Avenue in Detroit, the film follows B-Rabbit, a white rapper looking to break through while struggling to stay afloat. Curtis Hansen would direct. Eminem said that he wrote Lose Yourself in between filming scenes for the movie. It would be the lead single from the soundtrack, and it would be number one in the U.S. for a very long time, as you said, number one in the U.K., number two on the Hot Rap Songs chart, which is surprising on some level, but this was number 1 just about everywhere in the world.
0: Yeah, I mean this song was every place uh for several weeks. I mean the movie was every place. It's really Eminem has such an interesting career arc where going back to what we talked about him with uh My Name Is and some of the early things this sort of weird probably over the top immaturity to something like Stan that seems like there's sort of, uh, you know, like a step forward, but also occasionally has its like problematic things to this whole sort of era of Eminem where it feels like he's sort of looking in at himself and really commenting on himself and his upbringing where he's gotten. And then, I mean, like, I, he kind of like, stagnates for a while, I think, but it's mm-hmm. like there was this moment here where he was such a giant star and he was such a giant crossover star. I mean, this was something that it wasn't even in just the music world. It wasn't even the rap world. It was everybody was like,
1: you know, listening to Eminem, watching Eminem on the big screen. The Eminem show is a terrific album. I had every Eminem album at this point, and there's so many good tracks on this till I collapse, which I Absolutely considered to nominate for this episode is one of the three best Eminem songs ever, in my opinion. This is essentially a better version of Till I Collapse because it sort of has that same hero's journey. But, man, this is so good. The guitar stabs are iconic. The first verse, Eminem's whole speaking intro, the energy, the flow, the way the beat mimics a heartbeat before the backbeat hits, the hook... And then the little things, you know, if you listen closely to the chorus, M is doing this thing where he goes, da da da, da da da, you only get one shot, opportunity, lifetime, sort of in the background. He's doing these background vocals himself. And there's just that like sense of like brill building, detailed pop, sort of master working happening here, right? The multi track vocals that track depending on how impactful the words need to be, as in some words aren't multi-tracked at all, but then when he really wants to bring some impact, he multi-tracks three times over a word. The half of the second verse that starts with, it only grows harder, and how he slant rhymes and rhymes nearly everything with the word harder for the next 30 seconds. How half that final verse seems to be written completely to set up the Mackay Pfeiffer line. I mean... There's so much here that is just meticulously crafted. The craftsmanship is off the charts and we've had so much rap in this podcast and the craftsmanship has always been in the production side where Timbaland and before that, you know, public enemy and and the, uh, the bomb squad were making these very cool beats that were doing really, really intricate things. Dr. Dre as well. But now you have a lyricist who is doing the very meticulous things to create these slant rhymes and these real rhymes that are percussive and work so fluently well together.
3: the to Success is my only motherfucking option. Failure's not. Mama love you, but this.
1: Here is as good as it's ever been in rap history. I I really think this is one of the greatest rap songs ever and one of the greatest single songs ever. It's just so perfect from moment one to moment final.
0: Yeah, the other thing about this that just stands out is the way that it builds anticipation. It's constantly it's like a constant build-up track, and mm-hmm. it does give you enough payoff that you keep listening, but it like it's just that it, it just sort of keeps you know, sort of pulling you in. It's like tailor-made for playing at sporting events where it's like you're constantly like getting ready and getting hyped up and it just sort of builds on what's next. It also, I mean, to your point about the production as well, it's like it is so well done and so well pulled together and I can't help but think it, it kind of brings us like full circle to some of the things we were talking about in like the mid 80s where... Uh, You know, hip hop sort of like hip hop and rap sort of came on the scene. And we talked about a lot of the early songs. And then there were these moments where like rock songs would draw on little elements of rap or hip hop, like they'd have little sort of rap interludes, or they'd take a little bit of the beat, uh, and drum samples or do things. And it was like sort of barring from it. And then it got to the point, And I think we really talked about this with the Verve with bittersweet symphony, where it was like, by that time it was like a track that was ostensibly, you know, a rock song was half like a, you know, hip hop song in a way, because it had so much sampling in it and so much of like the underlying drums. It's like, this is almost bringing it back where it is undoubtedly, you know, in the genre of rap, but you've got that, the guitar that you were talking about but then also that piano that it's like that's basically just borrowed from like classic rock i mean that's just sort of this little like thing it's like that this that would have fit in on like you know guns and roses use your illusion albums like that little sort of twinkly piano that sort of gives it this emotional undertone to it and it's like i can't help but think we sort of come all the way around where it's now like this is mainstream this again this was number one for 12 straight weeks rap is what people are listening to eminem is what people are listening to but there's a little bit of
1: callback to some of these things from history that's lose yourself by eminem our 11th nominee from 2002 that brings us to the final nominee of 2002 and now we're going to zoom into the future because this song basically tells the story of what's coming next it's lil john yeah and the east side boys get low
3: Okay. Skeet, Skeet, Skeet!
1: Oh, come on! <laughs> this is it, man. Mike, we should do this. Are, we should do here. this entire
0: this entire thing. We should just talk about while yelling at each other.
1: Yeah. Jonathan Smith. shares <laughs> a birthday, with Chris, Chris wrote that, though he's a few years older. He was born in 1971 in Atlanta. When he was 15, he taught himself how to DJ going with the moniker Lil John. and his parents let him throw parties in the basement of his family home because they thought it was safer than having him go out on his own. Good parents. After graduating high school, he moved on to the Atlanta clubs where he caught the attention of producer Jermaine Dupree. Dupree brought Lil John in, not as a rapper, but as an executive VP of A&R for So So Deaf Records. Among his major coups was co-producing the 1996 Miami-based dance hit My Boo by Ghost Town DJ's great song. In his spare time, Lil Jon produced for other artists and continued his DJ work. In 95, Jon would team up with Big Sam and Lil Bo to form the Eastside Boys. Their first single, Who You Wit, is generally credited with popularizing the term crunk and would be featured on their debut album, Get Crunk, Who You Wit, the album. After two other successful albums, the trio released 2002's *Kings of Crunk*, which included "Get Low." Released the following year as the second single, another one of those records. The first time I heard it, I was like, "Whoa, what is happening here?" The <laughs> windows, the walls, the sweat dropping down my balls, the skeet skeet of it all. What what a, what an <laughs> awesome moment this brings in! Like, th- what an awesome thing. Yeah, I
0: mean, this is another one that like I was. I didn't necessarily know what to expect. I, it is fun. Uh, it's like the only thing that sort of jumps off to me is like, this sounds like it is, in it is like created to be played really loud, preferably while driving in some way where you can really irritate your neighbors. Like mm-hmm. it is definitely just sort of this, like I like in your face, uh, like a lot of there. I mean, we were sort of joking at the beginning about the yelling, but like, that's what it is. It's kind of like the sonic equivalent of yelling, but it somehow comes across to have this sort of this melody to it, this hook to it. That really, really sounds good. Like I kept, I would get this one caught in my head and keep coming back to it because it does really sort of have that, you know, the, just the right balance of melody and right. A balance of fun that comes back.
1: Well, talking about yelling the words like, yeah, (laughs) like, (laughs) Lil John created a language, right? He just created a language. And Dave Chappelle would obviously popularize that <laughs> on his show, doing the Lil John conversations. But this became a vernacular that a lot of us, of my age especially, were dipping into in the 2000s, for sure. And Usher, Ludacris, Lil John's, yeah, would be sort of the mainstream ideal of all of this. This is crunk. Started in the early 90s, part of the evolution of Southern rap with Miami bass, defined by 808 hand claps and big bass. That simple bare-bones sound is the blueprint for the next 20 years of rap, with the cousin genre trap becoming more popular in a few years' time. But everything on top, the trumpet synths, the keyboard melody, the whistles, essentially cultural window dressing. But this was a sea change. I remember hearing this and thinking, wow. This is totally new, totally fresh, a different direction, and we not too long ago had New Orleans rap on this podcast with Makeup Say Uh by Master P, which kind of gets you into that sense of what Southern rap is going to be, but doesn't maybe have the complete melody as this does. This is just that evolution happening. It's Atlanta, it's a different set altogether, but it's the same sort of aesthetic of A little grimier, a little more sort of from the DIY aspect of it all, trying to create something out of nothing. You don't have the big money like Def Jam does in the East Coast or Dr. Dre has on the West Coast. They're doing something that is very much their own thing. And what this is, is just creating this entire, as I said, language that will be the language of hip hop for the next 20 plus years. Yeah,
0: I had no idea that Little John was quite the Renaissance man. uh, You know that he had done all these. You know Ben is involved as what he was, Uh, and you can sort of like, I I think you can sort of hear that in this. Like what you said, I mean there is this real sort of DIY uh, quality to it that it kind of feels like it's sort of uh, you know it it, like you said it doesn't feel like it's sort of over moneyed. It doesn't feel like it's over polished, but it's clearly coming from someone who knew uh you know, who knew the history but also sort of just knows production techniques and had been in the room before because it's like every i mean like like what you said about just sort of the you know about the keyboard sense and about sort of the way that everything kind of works together it's all there for a reason There's no part of this that's really like a throwaway, which is kind of funny to say about a song that's, you know, openly sort of humorous and is, uh, you know, it is sort of what it is. But it's like there's no element of this that is just that is not there on purpose, that isn't part of the overall production. It's it, it's fun. So I didn't I remember this. I remember hearing this around. But uh, going back and listening to it, I
1: was like, you know, I couldn't help but get it caught in my head because it really is a fun track. Well, that is get low by little john and the east side boys and as we clean up the sweat that has poured down to the floor let's recap with the top 12 songs from 2002 our nominees for the hall of songs they are don't know why by nora jones complicated by avril levine cute without the e cut from the team by taking back sunday hot in her by nelly "Grindin" by clips Losing My Edge by LCD Sound System. Do You Realize by The Flaming Lips. Clocks by Coldplay. The Way We Get By by Spoon. Work It by Missy Elliott. Lose Yourself by Eminem. And Get Low by Lil Jon of the East Side Boys. Those 12 songs will join the current songs that are still on the ballot for our 48th election for the Hall of Songs. That election will kick off when this episode drops. The episode drops on April 30th, 2023. If you're listening to this podcast between April 30th of 2023 and May 7th of 2023, you can go to hallofsongs.com and vote for the 10 songs, up to 10, that you think belong in the Hall of Songs. Now, we don't know what the other songs are on that ballot because we're recording this before the 47th election closes. So we don't have those results yet, but I will tell you, I will tell you, this is probably a really good, thorough, eclectic ballot. I don't think I'm saying anything wrong there. (laughs) Okay, so outside of the songs that we nominated, there are other songs that we considered, other songs that we like from 2002. Chris, what are your drops for this year?
0: All right. So I guess it was really like a week ago we decided we we're going to do this one tonight and not try to put it off for a week. So I quickly went through everything and sort of uh, like sketched down some ideas for 2002. And I had seven songs on my list. Ooh, Six boy. of them ended up getting nominated. These were just like seven in, in the seventh, which I will just mention now is NYC by Interpol. Uh, just sort of from the same sort of that that New York uh sound, that New York scene that I wasn't really into at the time but got into later. I don't know exactly where Interpol fits, but that's just one that kind of does feel like it's very 2002-ish. Another one is Johnny Cash, and his most played... Song on Spotify and probably his highest selling song of all time is his cover of Nine Inch Nails' "Hurt," which came out mm-hmm. in two thousand and
3: two.
0: Mm-hmm. So it feels like that's worthy of mentioning. I think I may talk a tiny bit about that on the Veterans Committee episode, not that uh, and the nomination thing, but uh, about that sort of era of the world. But it's like uh, uh, that's an interesting one to me. It, it was looking at that, I, I was, it wasn't even so much shocked that it was his number one song, but by how much it's his number one song on all of the streaming services.
1: Do you think it's worth a nomination or no?
0: Not necessarily. I mean, I think it's a good song, but I actually think that the Nine Inch Nails original version is better. But uh, uh, no, I like I wouldn't necessarily nominate it. But uh, uh, it's it was like you've mentioned this even in some of our court like like talking about some of our nominations. What's going on in the? We even talked about in this episode with Avril Lavigne. What's going on with like country music and these sort of weird riffs and what's on country radio and what's not being played on the radio and things like that. And you have an artist who is one of the legends of country music and is basically taking, you know, an alternative rock song for whatever in making that, releasing that in a completely new version and reinventing it. I, I mean, it's, I don't know, there's something to it that's really clever. I think Johnny Cash's performance itself is really good. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't have nominated it myself, but I do think it's worth a,
1: you know worth noting in the context of all these other songs. I will give you a couple songs and just brief thoughts on each, whether we were going to nominate them or not. Justin Timberlake, Crime Your River, his Justified album comes out this year. Crime Your River is the best song from that album. It's a really good record. It was close, not quite. Rock Your Body is definitely, I'm trying to be Michael Jackson, not quite. Dixie Chicks, The Chicks, Long Time Gone, Landslide, both really, really good. The Landslide covers, fantastic, but they came close, not quite. No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age. Also very close. Ultimately, didn't really have that extra oomph to get it in like some of the other songs did. So again, close but no cigar. A Better Son Daughter by Rilo Kiley. Man, what a record. What a great song. Well written, well performed, like beautiful. We might talk about that in the VC. We'll see about that one. want to talk about Maroon 5's big album songs about Jane. She Will Be Loved, This Love. Sunday Morning, the best song on that record, by the way. All very good. All great sort of adult contemporary-ish pop rock songs. Eh. eh Maroon 5 might get the big eh from me at the end of the day. They've written a lot of decent songs. they performed a lot of decent songs, but I don't know if any of them are like Hall of Songs, Definite, whatever. Red Hot Chili Peppers, by the way, album comes out. I don't like this era of Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm going to be honest. I think their best stuff was much earlier Late 80s, early 90s, that's it. This stuff is like adult contemporary times 50. It's just not what I like about them. So my fault if you like Red Hot Chili Peppers and are upset at me. Miss Lauren Hill, her Unplugged album, Unplugged number two. I Gotta Find Peace of Mind, terrific. That whole album is incredible. Nothing there really screams to me like Hall of Songs worthy, but the whole album is just unbelievable and super influential. Listen to that if you haven't yet. Also got to mention Big Timers and Still Fly, which I think is a very underrated, great Southern New Orleans hip hop track. Totally worth it. Do I have anything else? Oh yes, one more. I would have told you like 10 years ago that the best song from 2002 was the Ignition Remix by R. Kelly. I'm telling you today, screw R. Kelly, go to hell. We're not nominating the Ignition Remix. That's it. That was
0: a lot of songs, Tim. Uh, I didn't come up with quite that many, but I'm with you on R. Kelly.
1: So, again, HallOfSongs.com is where you vote for what you think are worthy of the Hall of Songs. You have up to 10 choices to make between April 30th and May 7th. That'll do it for Hall of Songs. Before we say bye, though, who do we thank for things? I mean we're not getting the plaques anymore. We're not getting the theme music anymore, but we should still thank. They worked hard.
0: They've worked hard over time. So thank you to stock music media for our music and theme song. And thank you to uh, Aaron DeLashman Piper down productions. And you can still go buy hall of
1: songs, merch at his site uh, on Redbubble. And the theme music is me putting something together at the last minute to try to do something different, which is why it's not as good as the stuff we've had in the past. If you want to contribute music to Hall of Songs, especially if you've gotten this far in the podcast and are still listening to us, maybe you're the type who would give us music. Send us a message over email, hallofsongspod at gmail.com, hallofsongspod at gmail.com, and we'd love to get your music in here. If it's 2000s-themed, we'd love it. So please send us that message. That's it for Hall of Songs. I'm Tim. I'm Chris. It's me. For me wrong.
3: Little John okay i feel lonely i feel like i just need to talk to someone who will understand and well that someone is you john
2: okay
3: don't you like popsicles what i said don't you like popsicles what i said don't you like popsicles
2: yeah what yeah
3: sometimes i feel like i am all alone in this world and i have no one to go to what I said, sometimes I feel like I'm all alone in this world and I have no one, sir. What?